Amen. Well, I'm so excited for this morning and the beginning of our new series, uh, The Passion Week. The Passion Week. And so I know many times as we get closer and closer to Easter, uh, obviously we'll celebrate Palm Sunday and then Easter Sunday. And I know that usually uh, we don't really get into those texts until we get closer to Easter. Now this morning we're beginning a new series going through literally different things that took place during the Passion Week. And we want to look at this last week of Jesus' earthly life. Now, as I said before, last week when we talked about the series, I do understand that Jesus resurrected on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, which I cannot wait to celebrate with everyone here. And we do know that after his resurrection, he spent about 40 days on earth training his disciples, teaching his disciples, doing all those things before finally ascending into heaven, which we read about in Acts chapter 1. So when I say his earthly life, I'm referring to up to the cross and then the resurrection. All right, so I'm talking about that last week of his earthly life. And over the next six weeks leading up to Easter, which this series will take us right up until Easter Sunday, we're going to look at different things that happened during that week. We're going to unpack some different moments. And I, I asked it last week and I would ask it again. If, if you knew this week coming up, starting today, was your last week of life, what would you do this week? What would you decide to do this week that maybe the Lord's been leading you to do, but you've been putting off? How would you live every single day different than you lived it this last week? I've, I've shared this before, but I was listening to a speaker years ago, and he shared that a friend of his actually died after preaching in a service. This gentleman preached a message, literally sat down, and then died. And this individual, uh, this speaker, was saying that, that that moment was surreal for many reasons. But one of the things he said that has always rung true with me and in my calling, if you will, is that, that this speaker said, you know, that made me really evaluate everything I started preaching from that point forward. And he realized if this was the last sermon I would ever preach, what would I say? If this was the last sermon I would ever preach, would I really be concerned about offending someone with God's word? Would I really be concerned with how people are going to receive this in the culture or in the community? Or would I just preach the word completely uncompromised, free, and prayerfully leading to people coming to Christ? And so as we think about these kind of things, I know we don't like to think about that because it, it makes it seem kind of morbid. But it's, not, it's really actually kind of a, a way to think soberly about our lives. I mean, James says, boast not of tomorrow. Your life's a vapor, appears for a short time and vanishes away. Every moment we have breath in our lungs, we should look at it as an opportunity to make an investment for the kingdom of God. Words we say, the things we do. Now, let me also be equally true. I don't live every day that way. I don't live every moment of my life for the glory of God completely obedient in every area, every day for the last so many years since I've been saved. I'll just admit that. But I pray that tomorrow I would be more obedient than I was today. And even more obedient than I was yesterday. To choose obedience. To choose holiness. And so if this was your last week, what would you see as important? Things you would have to do, conversations you would have to have. Let me share this with you with as much grace as I can. I don't know what tomorrow holds for you, and I don't know what tomorrow holds for me. So let's not wait till the end of the week to make things right or to do what God's calling us to do. Let's just go ahead and do that today. Let's just surrender today. Let's just conform to him today by his grace. Let's just have that conversation today. Let's just extend that forgiveness that we've been holding back today. Let's just move on past that weakness today in God's grace and by God's strength. Passion week, as referred to this, this last week of Jesus' earthly life, is really called this and called the Passion Week because it speaks to the passion that Jesus demonstrated willingly that led him all the way up to the cross. The Passion Week is called that because the passion that Jesus showed and demonstrated to be committed to the cross, to commit himself to what needed to be done so that you and I might be saved. 
And that is why we hear the movie that was made years ago, The Passion of the Christ, referring to the crucifixion and all that led up to that. Because it demonstrated the passion of which Christ had, the commitment that Christ had, that the Father's will will be done. And I'm amazed by that. Because I know me. And I know how fallen I am. And for Jesus Christ to go to that cross for me blows my mind. That he would love me that much. That he would love me to that degree. That he would demonstrate his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, you didn't get yourself cleaned up and then Jesus saved you. No, you came broken and, and, and vile before him in your sin. And he rescued you. He gave you grace when you deserved wrath. And the passion that Christ exhibited is what we're going to look at in the coming six weeks. Passion Week is described, and I'm going to give you some references here, but also uh, you can go on the app and find the notes there. Uh, The notes are available this week. And so if you go into the media section, sermon notes, you'll find today's notes if you'd like to follow along. Or if you miss something and you would like a copy of my notes directly, just reach out to me and I would just send them to you that way as well. But other gospel, or the gospel accounts, I should say, the gospel accounts that give us the Passion Week, we have Matthew chapters 21 through 27. So Matthew 21 and 27, chapters 21 through 27. Mark chapters 11 through 15. Luke chapters 19 through 23. I'll go through this list again. Some of you, I'm just, you're like writing and you're like, if you don't slow down, I'm going to throw my pen at you. (laughs) So Luke 19 to 23 and then John chapters 12 through 19. So Matthew chapter 21 through 27. Mark chapters 11 through 15. Luke chapters 19 through 23. In John chapters 12 through 19. This kind of covers the Passion Week of Christ. The traditional calendar for the events of our Lord's last week of ministry. Uh, And if you've ever studied this, you find out there are some differences of opinion. Uh, Some people believe things happened slightly differently on different days. We're going to dive into some of those examples as we move through the series, but not too many of them because I don't really want to kind of bog down in those things. I want to focus more on the key purpose and reason for this week. Uh, But we will address some of those things. Even this morning, we'll address a supposed error, a contradiction that people will point to uh, in dealing with the Passion Week. But the traditional calendar of events, uh, obviously on Sunday, was what we call the Triumphal Entry, or Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. On Monday, we see the cleansing of the temple. And I don't think that was by chance, that that was one of the first things that Jesus did after coming into the city. On Tuesday, we see, again, just controversies and kind of disagreements with the Jews and the religious leaders. Wednesday, many believe to be a day of rest, which I, I love that many theologians actually include that. Uh, because we look at the, the, the person of Christ and we just think, because he is God, he just went 24-7. He was also the God-man and did demonstrate a need for rest. And so I appreciate that even the Lord Jesus seemingly, now again, a day of rest does not mean a day of complete inactivity. We know that he was always about the Father's will. But again, rest can mean just that, a time of just rest. Thursday, we see obviously the preparation for the Passover. This is also believed to be the day of the Last Supper with his disciples and the betrayal of Christ. So Thursday would be preparation for the Passover, the Last Supper, and the betrayal of Judas. Friday, we see the trial and the crucifixion. The trial really kind of bled over from Thursday into Friday. And then the crucifixion on Friday, which we call Good Friday, which is such an amazing term. I don't know if you've ever, when I was early on saved, I always heard about Good Friday, Good Friday. And I've said this before. This is not an exaggeration. This is not me trying to be funny. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I was always taught be moral, be good, but I never really, you know, I thought good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. That's just how it works. And I was always so confused that Jesus was born on December 25th and died on Good Friday and then rose on Easter. And I struggled with an infant being killed. I I literally thought, well, he was born on Christmas and died on Easter. Like, It's only a couple of months. Like, what's going on here? Why would that take place? 
And when I say that, people are like, you didn't really, I genuinely, that's, that was the scope of my Christian knowledge uh, really up until 15 years old. I just never knew. No one ever really explained it to me. And then when I got saved and the more I understood it and studied it, the term Good Friday always struck me. And I always thought, how can we call such a tragedy, such a horrendous act good? And then we realized the cross is good because of what it provides, what it sustains for us in Christ, what it makes available to us in Christ. What happened to Christ in our understanding was not good. It was horrendous. It was the worst thing you can imagine. But what it provided to us, what it brought about in the salvation of God's people, in the glory of God going forth, it was good. And again, so often we have to stop defining these words in our understanding and define them as God sees them. So Friday we see Good Friday, the trial and the crucifixion. Saturday, Jesus rests in the tomb, and this is from our perception, okay? We know there was a lot more going on from the time of his death to the time of his resurrection. But for our understanding, from the biblical perspective of what physical things Jesus did, in, you know, during this last week, we would say he was in the tomb, okay? And so we'll talk on some of that later on, what actually took place during that time when he was in the tomb. But to our perception and to the people's perception, Jesus was just in the tomb, and then Sunday, the greatest day of human history, Jesus rose from the dead. And that is why, even to this day, if you go to Jerusalem and they try to tell you where the garden tomb was and is, they don't really know because he's not there. That didn't do a lot for you. That, that blows me away. Let me try that again. So prepare yourself now. You know it's coming. If you go to Jerusalem today, and you are seeing the sights, and they tell you, well, we believe this is the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed. This is where we believe the cross was. This is Mount Calvary. And this is where we think the garden tomb was, where Jesus was laid. They can only assume that because Jesus is no longer there. Amen. See, that's, and I know we're kind of laughing about it, but, but can we be real for a second? I think some of us have lost the fullness of that. And I don't mean that critically. I just mean it honestly. If you can think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and it not cause you to be stirred in your emotion for the things of Christ, Jesus would encourage you, as he encouraged in the book of Revelation, you need to check and make sure you haven't left your first love. Because the fact that Jesus died on the cross and breaks our hearts to see what he went through is one thing. But the fact that Jesus rose from the dead should stir in us a passion for the things of Christ because he is no longer dead. He is risen on the right hand of the throne of the Father, praying for us, interceding for us, equipping us to do what he's called us to do. He is a risen Savior. And there's so many believers in our world today that are focused more on what's going to happen to them this week than what happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'll be honest, I think some of us as believers, we don't live that resurrected life we're called to live because we really aren't affected by the resurrection anymore. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you through Christ and the Spirit of God. The same power, the Bible says, that rose Jesus from the dead is in you. And yet we pray as though he's a dead Savior in the tomb. We go to him with our problems and we think, can you really deal with this? I mean, can you really take care of this problem? Can you really be over this? Do you really have wisdom for this? Maybe I should just tell you how you should do this. Forgetting he rose from the dead. That's your savior. And when you pray, and when you seek him, that's who you're praying to. That's who's equipping you to do what you're called to do. That wasn't even in the notes. It was free. I just, I just, I'm always amazed at my own apathy towards the things of Christ at times. I mean, just to think about that. This week changed all of human history for all of eternity. And it all began with the king entering a city. Let's go to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 28, so Luke 19, 28, and these texts will be familiar, but again, can we pray? We're going to pray in just a moment here, and here's what I want 
you to pray as you're turning to Luke 19. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can turn to page 736. So one of the Bibles provided there on the seats, page 736. You can just turn to that page, Luke chapter 19. But I'm going to ask you to pray something. I'm going to read the text. So as we're reading the text, I'm going to pray after the reading of the text. I want you to pray, Lord, make this new to me. Draw me to this text. Enlighten me and show me what this text really says. That I would not read this as though I've read it a hundred times, but I would read it anew and afresh for your glory. Luke 19, 28. And when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Beth, Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go, in, go ye into the village over against you, in the which you are entering, you shall find a colt tied Whereon yet never man sat, loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus you sh shall you say unto him, because the Lord has need of him. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colts, the owners thereof said unto them, why loose ye the colts? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least, at la at least in this day, the things which belong unto thy peace... But now they are hid from thine eyes, for they shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee about, or compass thee round, and keep thy in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Let's pray. Father. Lord, as only you can, we ask that you'd open up this text to our mind, to our hearts, to our understanding. Holy Spirit, we thank you for being the author of, of this word, being the one that breathed and moved upon the men of Scripture as they wrote these things. And we know that, Holy Spirit, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as you moved among them, you can guide us and lead us into all truth. So we pray that our minds would be teachable this morning, that we would be pliable as followers of Christ, that we would learn and grow and understand at a deeper sense who you really are and what you came to do. And Father, I ask for forgiveness where we've grown apathetic in these things. I ask for forgiveness and grace where we've failed to fully recognize the beauty and the wonder of these things that we read. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us for that. I pray that you would draw us unto a newness and a freshness of these things, that you would stir within us a desire to see these things in a new way. And, Father, yet we thank you for heritage. We thank you for the teaching of parents and grandparents that grew us up in the church, that raised us up. Lord, we don't discount those things. But, Lord, sometimes the blessing of being around the church can be turned into a curse when it causes apathy in us. So I pray that you would stir in us, that you'd move in us, that we would see this text in a way that you desire us to see it. Father, be glorified in all of this. And Lord, if there's anyone sitting here this morning or maybe watching online that doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that they would know that you did all that you did going to the cross, being buried and rising again, that they, as they are right now, 
could come to know Christ as their Savior, be forgiven of all sin, granted and gifted eternal life, and live for you, and one day see you face to face. And so, Father, I pray that as only you can, you would work in all these things. Holy Spirit, draw us unto conviction that need to be convicted. Encourage those that are needing encouragement. Lord, just do what you need to do in our midst. And I pray we respond in faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we see this entering into the city, a, a triumphal entry. In verse 28 of the text, we read, And when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. You see, as Jesus and his disciples traveled to Jerusalem throughout the ministry of Christ, he made them aware of what would happen there. He prepared them for what was coming, that the Son of Man must be delivered over for death. However, the disciples, like us, could not grasp what their Lord was saying. It was go through what it sounded like he was saying he was going to go through because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah. There's no way this is going to happen. You see, the Passion Week was an intense experience, obviously, for Christ. But it was also equally challenging for the disciples. And as I was preparing and studying for this series, it kind of hit me this last week as I was writing and reading some things. And I was thinking, I always think about what Christ went through during this week. But I very rarely think about what the disciples went through this week. This was a challenging time for them. They don't understand everything that's happening. They're stepping out every single day. And I I do believe we're so hard on the disciples. We're always kind of picking at their faults. I can't believe they would argue about who's the best. I can't believe they would do this. I can't believe Peter would say that. You and I would say and do the same things. Maybe not out loud, but we definitely will think them or feel them and then not say them. So before we get all over the disciples, let's realize this is a hard week for them. They've spent years with this man. They've grown to love this man. They've grown to see him as the one that is coming to change the world. And to hear him saying, I'm going to be delivered over. I'm going to die. It was unbelievable to them. Their faith was going to be tested. And at the same time, their faith was going to be strengthened. You see, they needed this week just as much as we did. They needed the Passion Week to lay the foundation of all that Jesus was going to use them to do in the coming years, decades, and even up until today. What does Jesus say in John 17? I don't pray for just these, the disciples. I pray for those who will believe on their word. You see, the disciples had a huge undertaking ahead of them, and they needed this week to prepare them to deepen their faith to recognize their weakness and to see Christ for who he really was. And so as we begin this series, I want to ask you, just between you and God, how is God going to use this week? Now for us, it's six weeks because it's a Baptist church. We take one week and we turn it into six. Amen. And next week we have a potluck. Amen. Okay. Somebody was like, why are you Baptist? I was like, "Uh, duh, the food. Like that's an easy answer. There's nothing else like it. But I want to ask you, how can God use these studies through this last week to deepen your faith? How are you going to grow this week? How are you going to grow in the next six weeks? How are you praying, maybe even daily, Lord, use this study to deepen and strengthen my faith for what lies ahead? Aren't you so thankful that God prepares us for what lies ahead? Now, whether we respond in the right way in the preparing is up to us. That doesn't usually get a big amen, but I, I, I know we're on the same page. Here's why we don't really amen that, because we don't always like what lies ahead, do we? But aren't you thankful that God is sovereign and can prepare you now for what's six weeks, six months, six years down the road? And you look back and you go, Lord, that's why you brought so-and-so into my life. Lord, that's why you put me in that Bible study. Lord, that's why you put me in that church. Lord, that's why we were in that passage on that day in that devotion, and I'm so thankful for it. You see, the disciples' faith was challenged and strengthened beyond even their understanding in this moment. Could you imagine James and John, Peter, in their own lives, maybe not so much James, the son of Zebedee's case. He was actually one of the first disciples martyred. But as these men were ministering and living for Christ, can you imagine sitting by themselves in a time of prayer and reflecting over this week and just saying, Lord, thank you for that week. I didn't get it. 
I still don't get it because we don't fully get it today. But to sit and to say, Lord, thank you for that week. I needed that time. I didn't want to go through that week. Could you imagine Peter praying, Lord, I didn't get it, but thank you for your patience with me that I rebuked you. How foolish. But now I see it had to happen. So how would God do that in our lives? As we unpack this moment of entry into the city, I want to notice two keys in the text. Two keys in the text. So the first thing we need to note is the heralding of the king. And secondly, we need to note the heart of the king. The heralding of the king and the heart of the king. So the first point in your notes there, the heralding of the king. We see here a Messiah king. A Messiah king. Now we read it in verses 28 through 36. We see here an amazing story of Jesus sending his disciples to go and receive this colt, this young mule, this donkey, and to bring this animal to him. And I love this story because we don't fully know whether Jesus prearranged this meeting, that he already had a conversation with the owners of the animal and to say they're going to come and they're going to receive this or Some have suggested that. Some have suggested, no, Jesus being God knew that these were believers. These were followers of Christ. And they were willing to sacrifice this animal for the cause of Christ and to allow it to be used for this. And so we don't fully know because the Bible doesn't tell us. People in church history have been on both sides of this fence. Some it was the omniscience of God that he just knew this would happen. Some have suggested, um, I believe the Moody commentary suggests that this was prearranged. It was just a set up thing. Doesn't take away from who God is. It's just a different way of viewing it. We don't know. But the point is, these individuals were willing to sacrifice and not kill this animal, but surrender this animal for the purpose of Christ, for the cause of Christ. They were willing to say, yes, go ahead and take this animal. Now, this is actually a fulfillment of prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. And in this moment of Jesus riding into the city, he is proclaiming himself to be king to the Jews. Now, this is the point I was referencing a few minutes ago, that there are some who claim that there's a contradiction in Scripture here among the gospel accounts of the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. In Matthew's account, there's a speaking of a donkey and a colt. That there are two animals, actually, that are present. So which did Jesus ride or did he ride both or is this a contradiction in scripture an error in the accounts between Matthew's account and the other gospel accounts specifically in our case Luke's again there is debate around this but I believe it can be easily understood that Luke not mentioning the other animal the donkey does not mean it wasn't there this would be like saying I had Keith and Renee over the house for dinner. And then a few little while later in the conversation, I said, yeah, Keith and I at dinner. Well, you're not going to assume, well, Renee must have left. Although hanging around with Keith and I, Renee is probably like, after a little bit, I'm done. I need to go. I got to excuse myself. My wife says very often that Keith's pretty intelligent. I'm fairly intelligent. But together, we somehow lose something. I don't know what happens. We just pull each other down. But it's always fun. That's what I can't, I just can't, it's, we laugh a lot. Um, that's not the point of the story. It's just an illustration. Just bear with me. So for Luke to not mention the donkey, does that automatically mean we assume, well, the donkey must not have been there. It's a contradiction. No, for Luke's purpose, he doesn't need to mention the donkey. He mentions the colt, the animal that Jesus rides. So Matthew giving us that information doesn't contradict Luke's account. Matthew's merely saying, There's two animals here, and Jesus is going to ride the colt. They're both taken. And Luke just gives us the information of the colt or the the younger animal. Some have also suggested that mostly, uh, or maybe because it was a long ride, that maybe Jesus rode the donkey first because the younger animal was smaller and therefore not maybe able to hold the weight for as long. And then before entering the city, rode the colt. Some have said that Jesus rode the colt the whole way and the the other animal, the donkey, most likely the mother, walked alongside. So these are very easy to understand solutions to a supposed contradiction. But you'll hear people say, well, here's a contradiction in scripture. 
But really, it's surfaced, once we dive into the text, as any other contradiction, supposed contradiction in Scripture, because there are no contradictions in Scripture. Amen? Amen? It is infallible. It is without error. Okay? The only issues we come across are some translational issues, where there's a misspelled word or a misspelled use of, or some misuse of grammar. Those are things that can be accounted to translation, not inspiration. Okay? And so here we see there's some solutions to this, but I wanted to lay that out there because if you're reading this on your own, or maybe you come across an article, you might hear this come up in study. Again, we must note here as well, we think of the donkey to be a lowly animal. Many of you think, well, Jesus coming in as a donkey is an act of humility because he doesn't come in, come in on a war horse or a larger animal. So this must be him being very humble, very meek and very mild. Now, Jesus was meek and mild. But in this text, I don't believe that's what's being communicated here, an act of humility. I think what actually is being communicated here is that he is the king. He is the king. If you go back and you can jot it down, 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 33 through 34, Solomon rode a mule to be anointed as king. This would be a colt. This would be a similar animal to what Jesus rode, rode coming into Jerusalem. So this is exactly the animal that Jesus is meaning to ride because it demonstrates that he is king. He is coming as the king. The mention of a donkey in Zechariah 9 verses 9 through 10 fits the description of a king who would be, quote, righteous and having salvation. A king who is gentle. Rather than riding to conquer, which would mean Jesus coming in on a war horse, we read that in Revelation, this king would enter in peace. That Jesus would enter in peace. This also affirms the proclamation of the angels at his birth. You see, Jesus entered Jerusalem the first time on Palm Sunday as a king ushering in peace. And what does John 14 tell us? Don't let your heart be troubled. Peace I give unto you. Peace I leave with you. Jesus is the, according to Isaiah, the Prince of Peace. So this is symbolic and demonstrating of his ministry, what he's coming to do. Now we will read again in Revelation that he comes a second time as a conquering king. And we will see a very different image of Jesus in Revelation than you do in Luke 19. Same Jesus, different aspects of the ministry of what he's coming to do. So we see here he is a Messiah king. He is coming to fulfill prophecy and scripture and coming as a prince of peace, one through the cross who will offer peace with God by faith through grace. Romans chapter 5 tells us that. So we also see here not only a Messiah king, but a king worthy of praise. A king worthy of praise. Now we read the text, but let's go back and read it again. Luke 19 verse 37 and when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise. They began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Do they really mean master? There's no submission here. There's no acknowledging his authority. They just don't like that they're calling Jesus the king of kings, that they're rejoicing and praising Jesus, that they're acknowledging that he is fulfilling these scriptures. goes on to say this in verse 40. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. If they hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. The people cried out and shouted praises to the king. In another gospel account, they shouted Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That's in Matthew 29. And we sang this morning, Hosanna. We cried out to him, Hosanna. But can we pause for a minute here? Just between you and the Lord right now, did you really mean you are the king of kings? You are the king of my life? You have all authority? I surrender to you as king? Did you really mean that when you cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna? Or were you just singing the words on the screen? Was I just singing the words on the screen? Or did I really mean you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords? 
Matthew's reference is really a reference back to Psalm 118.26. Blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And we not need to note here, this is the first time that Jesus allowed a public display of worship of himself as king. This is the first time in the gospel accounts that Jesus allowed this type of public display and worship of him as king. What did Jesus often say after completing a miracle or healing someone or casting out a demon? He would say what? Hey, listen, I'm paraphrasing. Don't tell anyone Go back and worship at the temple. Go back and do what the law says. Don't tell anyone. Just go praise God. And what did people do after these healings, after the demons were cast out, as good, normal, average human beings like you and I? They disobeyed. It reads right after that. And the fame of Jesus went abroad. And everybody knew in the whole city that Jesus had done this. And we go, man, look at the heart of those witnesses and the passion. They were disobedient. Jesus said, hey, could you just between, you know, go to the temple. We'll be fine. Just go to the temple. Okay, Jesus. Man, you got to see what this guy just did. That's how we know Jesus is gracious. Because if that was me, I'd be like, zap, you're gone. You didn't obey. But Jesus is not like us, praise God. And we see this display of worship taking place. And why now? Why is Jesus okay with it now? Because Jesus had an understanding as God that things were being fulfilled and the time was come. Do you remember early on when Mary sought Jesus for his first miracle and he says, my time has not come, it's not for now? He was referring to there's things that are going to happen, but they need to happen according to my schedule, according to my will, the Father's will. Some have suggested part of this was to also force the Jewish leaders to act. They hoped to kill Jesus after the Passover as to not mar Passover, which the Pharisees were all about the look of things. But this actually motivated them even faster to end this individual's life, to murder and kill Jesus. Now, again, that sounds like they took control, but God's plan was at work every single moment. Again, God or Jesus moved that these men would act quicker And now he outright defies them. The religious leaders wanted the people silenced, but Jesus declared that if they were silenced, the rocks would cry out. Now there's two ways to look at this. Either one, Jesus was being completely literal. That the actual stones would make noise and cry out with an audible sound. Now our God can do anything. I'm not saying definitively he was being literal or not literal. We don't know from the text. What I do know is the point he's driving home is I will be praised. I will be worshipped as king. Whether that meant it was a, a figurative form of speaking to say, if they don't worship me, creation will sing and worship me. I will get worship from my creation. Or if he literally meant I could make that stone praise me. We don't definitively know. There's opinions on both sides of this. But the point must not be lost that Jesus will be praised. And by the way, we live in a culture today that thinks they can deny Christ his value, his worth, and his worship, and that's okay. Well, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. You know what that means? He will be praised. Whether of an act of freedom of the will to say, Lord, I choose to worship you, or whether somebody bows before him as a coming under his judgment unto condemnation, and they say, you, yes, Lord, you are Lord. Not unto salvation, but in judgment, you are Lord. And that individual would then be cast away. You see, Jesus knew his time was come because all the things that take place during the Passion Week, including the cross, were under God's will. Jesus was not at any moment a victim of the moment. Unaware of all that was taking place, he was fulfilling the will of the Father as he came to do, which leads us to seeing the heart of the king. We see the heralding of the king, and now we see the heart of the king. Look at uh, Luke 19, verse 41. We see the heart of the king. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. You see in your notes there, Jesus wept over the city. 
While the people rejoiced, Jesus wept. While the people praised God and rejoiced and, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes, Jesus began to to cry, to weep. Because he's looking at the, the city, he's looking at the people, and he understands what they don't. Now, this term that Jesus wept over the city really doesn't do justice to the fullness of the actual original language here. A better translation or a more accurate translation could be said that Jesus burst into tears. He burst into tears. He began to weep uncontrollably. His heart broke for the people. This is actually the second time that we read of Jesus weeping openly. Now, I believe that if Jesus is who Scripture portrays him to be, to be, I believe he wept often in his prayer life. I believe he wept often over the disobedience of his creation, over the sin of the people. And I believe that aligns with Scripture. But this is the second time we read of him doing it publicly or openly. The first, obviously, is in John eleven thirty five, which anyone who's ever been in anything, we had to memorize a Bible verse, you went to John eleven thirty five because it just simply says, Jesus wept. And this took place at the funeral of Lazarus, which again was even weeping quietly among the family. But here we see that Christ's heart broke for the people. And why was his heart broken for the people? Because of their ignorance of what was happening before them and around them. One commentary says it this way. Jonah looked on Nineveh and hoped it would be destroyed. While Jesus looks at Jerusalem and wept because it destroyed itself. You see, the people refused to submit as a whole to the authority of who Christ really was. And he's coming in as king, and I believe the crowds are gathering and worshiping and praising. And as we're going to look at in a minute, I believe he saw even in that crowd the inconsistency in their heart, the lack of faith, the doubt. They were saying the right things audibly. They were praising him in the right ways, and yet were they really sincere? You see, we also see in the text that not only did Jesus weep over the city, but Jesus longed for them to have open eyes. Look at verses 42 through 44. Jesus longed for them to have open eyes. He wept over the city, and then in verse 42, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this day, or in this thy day, excuse me, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. See, again, Jesus is speaking about their peace, their comfort that could be available through him coming as the Prince of Peace. Verse 43. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep, that, keep thee in on every side. And shall lay thee, thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. You just don't see it. You don't see what's happening in front of you. And he wept over that. And I love that our God, our Savior, while yes, equally just and holy and pure, also when he sees us as sheep scattered without a shepherd, he doesn't in that moment condemn us. He weeps over us and invites us into a relationship. Now don't Get confused here. One day, according to even what Paul says in the book of Acts, one day we will all give an account and we will stand before him and we will either be invited into the joy of the Lord in Christ or we'll be cast away as ones who never knew him. And we can't confuse that because God, in this case, Jesus loves us and weeps over us and has a compassion for them that somehow that will override his justice and his holiness. God's grace and God's holiness work in complete unison, 100% pure, no contradiction. And he can say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And then equally say, but those of you who do not believe are condemned already. Because Jesus Christ is offering us salvation at the same moment, God will always be glorified either in his holiness or in his grace. You see, God's heart has not changed. It's the same broken heart we read about in Jeremiah chapter 2. You can jot that down. Jeremiah chapter 2. 
It's the same broken heart that Jesus demonstrates here in Luke 19. In Jeremiah 2, God cries out to the people, what did I do that would cause you to leave me? What did I do that you would leave full cisterns of water and go to broken cisterns in the ground that have nothing, no substance? Why would you leave? I was so good to you. I brought you out of Egypt and yet you turned your back on me. This is God's plea in Jeremiah 2. What is Jesus saying? You just didn't get it. You just didn't see what was before you. I believe Jesus was referring to what he says already, that they honor him with their lips, but their heart is far from him. Jesus wept openly and spoke a loud lamentation over the city, which is really over the people of Jerusalem. Again, this is like the prophet Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, who wept bitterly over the destruction of Jerusalem. You see, this is the prophecy that Jesus actually spoke over the city as well. The coming destruction at the hands of the Romans, which we know took place in 70 AD. Jesus entered the city as a king, and now he has demonstrated his role as prophet. When Jesus prays for the disciples and the church and the garden, he is serving as a priest. And in all of this, he is the Messiah. The prophet, the priest, and the king. In closing, I must note that it says in Luke 19 that all those who were shouting praise were a whole multitude of disciples. A multitude of disciples. This is more than just the 12. This is the vast group, a gathering of disciples. Some have said, and and me included, that the crowd cried Hosanna on Sunday, but crucify him on Friday. Now, to be fair to Scripture, we do not know for certain who made up the crowd in Pilate's Uh, Pilate's court before the religious leaders or beyond the religious leaders and the multitude of average folks. So there were some in the crowd that could have been bleed over from that first crowd shouting Hosanna, or it could have been a whole different crowd. We don't know definitively. However, knowing human nature as we do, I would not be surprised if some of the same people that said Hosanna on Sunday said crucify him on Friday. So a question arises in our minds. How can this be? How can someone shout and sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then on Friday go, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, we don't want Jesus. How can that be? Are these true disciples of Christ? Did they really believe and were just confused or doubting in that moment? Did they never believe? Again, we don't know definitively, but the point I see here is that crowds can be misleading. In our own church culture in America, people will shout, Jesus is Lord, until they discover that Jesus doesn't do all that they want him to do or think he should. Many believe that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government, the Roman occupation during this week, this Passion Week. And when the Passion Week ended with not the Romans being overthrown, but Jesus being laid in a tomb, maybe many of their opinions changed. Maybe when they thought Jesus would come in and overthrow Pilate, and then they see him on display being tried by Pilate, their opinions change. Well, this can't be right. This isn't what I wanted. You're not doing what you should be doing. You're not really the king, because you're obviously, if you were the king of kings and the Lord of lords, you would do what I wanted you to do. Because obviously, you, Jesus, you conform to me, and my expectations are our expectations. See, when we repent and turn from our sins, trust in Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, admitting that he is Lord of our lives, we admit that he is Lord of our lives. What does that mean? That means that that's true no matter where he leads us or what he does. It also means it doesn't change based on if he does things outside of our understanding or leads us into things that we don't quite understand, the why or the why now type questions come up. We follow him. We don't live at the whim of the crowd and the pull of the culture. We follow Christ. We live and die standing upon the person of Jesus Christ, not following the whim of the crowd and their expectations. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads right there where you are. This morning, we're going to have a time of invitation. And as we do, We want to invite you to respond to what God is doing in your heart and mind. As we sing this song of praise and this song of invitation, we want you right there where you are, maybe in your seats, and maybe you want to come forward and bend a knee. 
Maybe you would right there where you are, and again, or if you'd come forward and, and pray and say, Lord, I know you as my Lord and Savior, but if I'm being honest, I don't live my life as though you're my Lord, that you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are over all of this, that my life is in your hands. And again, it's so easy in church to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, praise him who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a lot more difficult to go from this place and live that practically every single day. And so I'm so thankful for grace and mercy. And as you pray right there where you are, as you begin to seek him, maybe you would thank him for his grace, thank him for his patience, thank him for his endurance with you. That you would cry out and say, Lord, thank you for being the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who entered that city and changed eternity. Because, Lord Jesus, you entering that city led you to the cross, to the tomb, and to the resurrection. And we are here today as sons and daughters of God, not in our merit, not in our good, not in doing good works or being a good person, but solely through grace, by faith, to receive the gift of salvation. So maybe we would respond this morning in thankfulness and praise that the King of Kings humbled himself and died the death of a criminal. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done this morning in opening our eyes and our understanding to your word through the Spirit. I pray that we would live in a way of submission before you, that we would not change our, our view of you Scripture says you are based on the whim of the crowd. And we live in a culture today that wants to tell us all kinds of things of what Jesus would or wouldn't do, things that Jesus does or doesn't believe. And I pray that we would not be pushed by the wind of, of this doctrine or this teaching, but we'd stand firm on the person of Christ through the word. So thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that we find therein. Affirm these things in our hearts and minds, Lord, for your glory. Give us wisdom and understanding how we might apply them to our lives. And thank you for the grace where we've failed and we've fallen, and yet you pick us up. And Father, if there's anyone here that has not personally received your gift of salvation, I pray that they would do so today, repenting of their sins, turning from their sins, and trusting Christ in the free gift of salvation, surrendering their lives to you. And Lord, thank you for all that you have done and will do, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we sing a song of invitation? Would you respond to what God is doing? Maybe here and there in your seats or here at the altar. Is he the king of kings in your life practically today? Or do we need to surrender anew and say, Lord, I'm surrendered today for your authority and your will to be done. Would you respond as we sing?